Yeah, thanks Elizabeth for that, for that reminder and that challenge and uh, what God has called us to do to take our, He wants our hands, our feet, our everything and, and for us to change the world. In fact, we've been talking about that a lot around here for the last uh, year or so about how God wants us to uh, set the world on fire, how He wants us to change the world and we're talking about the dream that God's given us as a community of faith to become the biggest little church in the world, uh, creating reproducing parishes of two to 300 priests and prophets who are just committed to helping people find their way back to God, that there's nothing more important than people finding their way back to God. And so we, we've tried to say it in different ways. We've uh, introduced you uh, in an October when it was much cooler than, than this October, uh, this character named Smackman. And how we're to see a need, hear the call, meet the need, because anyone uh, can do it. We're going to kind of revisit that here. But, but the context of that, and we've explained this in detail as we've gone through the scriptures, is that we, we've tried to put it this way. That around here, we do not believe in reincarnation, but we do believe in be-incarnation. That God has called each and every one of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ to live in such a way that people will know who God is. We've shown you from the scriptures that, that in the ancient world that uh, every, every nation had its God and when you went into a new nation, if you wanted to know what that God was like, the first place you were supposed to look was, was to the priests because priests were the ones who were supposed to put God on display. So if you want to know what that God's like, go look at their priests. One of Jesus' closest followers uh, wrote, um, you are a kingdom of priests. Each and every one of us who claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ are a priest. We are the ones to whom the world should look in order to put the divine on display. They want to know what our God is like. They should have to look no further than us. But much in our time, as it was in the Old Testament times, priests grow weary of doing what they're supposed to do. And people look at priests and like, if that's what God's like, no, thank you. And so the last book in the Older Testament, it's the... It's the book of Malachi. I want you to put a finger there, and then I want you to uh, put a finger in Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're going to go there and take a look at this famous story that Jesus told, maybe the, again, the most famous, the one that's most well-known. Uh, but before we do that, if we're going to live as priests, what does it mean to put God on display? Well, there are these prophets that wrote continually over and over again that God's people weren't putting Him on display very well. And the book of Malachi is written specifically addressed to the priests Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, A son honors his father, and slaves honor their master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. God's talking. He says, you say you honor me, but you don't. You say you respect me, but you really don't. But you ask, uh, uh, before that, it is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. So priests living with contempt towards the name of God. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? And then he goes on by saying, by offering defiled food on my altar. And he, he, he lays it out and he says, when, when, when you come to bring a sacrifice, you have acceptable animals that would be acceptable for the sacrifice, but you kind of fudge. You bring the one with a broken leg. You bring the one that's blemished. You, you're, you're trying to get away with it because you're, you're tired of serving me. Verse 10, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. He says, you're cheating me. 
And I just wish there was one. I wish there was one priest. I wish there was one group of people. I wish there was one temple where you would just say, no more. We're not going to worship like that. We're not going to cheat God anymore. We're going to do it the way God wants us to do it. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. It says, the sun sets in the east, it, or sun rises in the east, it sets in the west, and from where it rises to where it says, my name is supposed to be great. You're supposed to, as priests, honor my name. But look what priests begin to do. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, its food is contemptible, and you say, what a burden. And many of us approach our, our relationship with God that way. It's just, just a burden. I, I, I know I've got a relationship within, so heaven's my eternal home, but, but to do things the way God wants me to do them, that's just too tough, that's too burdensome. It's just a burden. And God gets upset. And it continues, uh, because you see, He's made a deal with His people. He calls it a covenant, and, and He makes a reference to this covenant, verse 4 of chapter 2. Uh, you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue. The tribe of Levi was the group of priests that God chose from all the nation of Israel to be the ones that represented him. And he said, I made a covenant with him. And my covenant, verse 5, with him was a covenant of life and peace. That's what God offers, and it's what he offers us through Jesus Christ. Life and peace. Jesus said, more and better life than you've ever dreamed of. Uh, a peace that passes understanding. Peace, which means wholeness and completeness with relationships with one another, with our relationship with God, with our relationship with their created order. But in order for that to happen, look what he says. I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Verse 7, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. If you're living as a priest, if you're walking in a relationship with God, if people are looking at you and seeing you put the divine on display, they're going to want to know why. And they should be able to find instruction from your Mouth, But look what happens, verse 8. But you've turned from the way by your teaching and have caused many to stumble and you have violated the covenant with Levi. So people don't, what, what you say, you say it's burdensome, you say it's contemptuous. Then look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13. You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements? And some of you today, in your relationship with God, you're supposed to be putting the divine on display, and you're like, what good does it do me to serve God? Look, I'm serving God, and terrible things are happening to me, while good things happen to those people over there who live however they want to live. What good does it do me to serve God? It's, it's burdensome, it's contemptuous. No, thank you. And God says, I'm looking for a group of priests who will live the way I want them to live and do the things I want them to do. So God wants us to live a certain way as, as priests, and uh, we need to do that. Now, there's a story of a priest that gets a bum rap in the Scripture. It's one of the most famous stories that, that Jesus ever told. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 10. It's the story that many of you are familiar with. Earlier this summer, uh, when it was only 70 degrees and not 90 like it is in October, uh, Pastor Dwayne went out to play golf over here at the Mound Golf Course. Now, he's on the second hole. If you've ever played over at the Mound Golf Course, just by the name of the course, you can understand. It's going to be Mounds, you know. You know, it's named for the Indian, but it's hilly. The second hole 
uh, you, you tee off and you tee off across a little ravine and the, the fairway is up high and if you're driving a cart, you go down into the ravine and back up. If you're walking, there's a, there's a footbridge that takes you across the ravine. Well, Pastor Dwayne's walking that day and he's, he's taken out across the ravine on the footbridge and he looks down into the ravine and he notices a golf cart down in the ravine. He's like, that's not right. I wonder what that's about. So he gets across the ravine, comes back down the hill and as he's approaching uh, the golf cart from the other side, he sees an elderly gentleman starting trying to crawl out of the ravine and he's, he's all bloody. Pastor Dwayne gets to him and, and gets him stopped and says, what's going on? I, said, I don't know. I was looking for my umbrella and uh, I don't know what happened. Well, evidently, uh, it had been raining a little bit and his golf cart hit some grass and he started to spin and his cart went out of control and he spun down into the ravine and he was just trying to get out. Well, Pastor Dwayne uh, got him uh, situated and said, stay here. Tried his cell phone, couldn't get anybody, couldn't get service. So he runs all the way back to the clubhouse uh, to get help. Well, they're able to get help out there and uh, get the, the paramedics out to the golf course. But by the time they had got out there, this gentleman had crawled all the way to the top of the fairway, out of the ravine, all the way up. Well, we found out later that he had broken his back and he had to have surgery. And so Pastor Dwayne and I went to play golf a couple of days later and, and we were uh, paying our money and checking in. And Dwayne goes, uh, how is Mr. So-and-so that, that was out here? And the lady uh, behind the... the running the register, got this big smile on, the fa- on her face and said, it's you, you're the, you're the, you're the, uh, gr- uh, the great neighbor. I thought she was going to say great pumpkin, but, you know, <laughs> I, which, which may, or may, or may have worked. But he's like, what? She goes, you know that Bible story, the great neighbor. Oh, the good Samaritan? Yeah, that's the one. This Bible story is known by just about everybody. But we look at it and we listen to it. Like, I know that story. But there's so much more culture and history behind it. I want you to to listen to it uh, again today with fresh ears. Luke chapter 10. This is the story that Jesus told. I I encourage you, fasten your seatbelt. Chances are you might hear something that you haven't heard before. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's an expert in the law. He stands at the, he stands at the top of the, the, the heap. He's, the, he's in the biggest clique there is. He's the one that, that other people come to. He's, he's the one that people come to. How are we supposed to live? Oh, that's what your God is like. So he's up there and he's a, he's a teacher of the law and he's in front of another a Jewish rabbi. So now the custom of the day was if you had respect for the Jewish rabbi, you would stand when you were to ask him a question. And so he stood to ask Jesus a question. Outwardly, the appearance is, I respect you. But what's really going on, he stood up to test Jesus. He had an ulterior motive. There's something going on. Um, He wants to humiliate Jesus. He wants to back him into a corner. He wants to paint Jesus uh, to be a heretic. Um, There's something else going on. So we have to kind of dig around here and say, what's going on? It's... It's not what it seems on the surface. He's standing up, but he's testing. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the Hebrew phrase for Jewish people. It's the olam haba. It's the, it's the life ever after. It's, it's we don't believe this is the only life. There's, there's something else. There's something that's next. Teacher, what must I do 
to gain the Olam Haba. Tell me, it's important to me uh, to know this. By my count, Jesus has asked over 300 direct questions in the Gospels. Only three times does he answer with a direct response. And this isn't one of them. Look at what he says. What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Jesus is like, you're an expert in the law. What's your take on it? You're supposed to know what's going on. You tell me. What's most important? How do you get the Olam Haba? How do you get eternal life? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Our Lord Jesus is recorded in Matthew 22. It's one of the things when Jesus was asked, Teacher, what's the greatest command in the law? Easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second that's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So evidently, either this guy heard Jesus say this, or, or this guy and Jesus were in total agreement about what was the most important thing in the law. But what happens next, this teacher of the law, this expert in the law, didn't expect. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And this guy's like, uh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, because if that was really his question, what do I do to, to inherit Olam Haba, eternal life, shouldn't the discussion have ended right there? Hey, we agree. You're right. Go and do it. And he walks away. Conversation ended. But look at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? A little arrogant, a little cocky. This, this, this reveals his motive. He really didn't care about inheriting eternal life. He was trying to back Jesus into a corner. There's a great debate, theological debate at this time in Jesus' day, as to who is our neighbor. Now, Jesus spoke mainly to religious people, and the religious people of Jesus' day thought their neighbor were those people who were just like them. They dressed alike, they talked alike, they ate alike, they worshipped alike, they looked alike. If... And Jesus apparently lived his life indicating that he didn't necessarily agree with that. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee to, to hang with people who lived on the other side of the lake. It wasn't just about the people who were just like him. And this guy, these Jewish religious leaders, did not like it. And so there was this debate, who's my neighbor and it's the same question we ask today. Really, who, who's my brother and sister? The Muslim, the Hindu, the atheist? You mean, you mean I, I really have to care about the person who votes differently than I do? Really? I'm responsible for them and I'm responsible uh, to them? This guy, I think, wanted Jesus to answer, who's my neighbor? He wanted Jesus to desperately say, everybody everywhere. Because that's how Jesus lived his life. But if Jesus said everybody everywhere, he would quickly be painted as a heretic. So Jesus does this amazing thing. He tells a story that most of us could tell ourselves because we've heard it so much. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, 
leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles. It was traveled frequently, but it was traveled at your own risk. It was curvy and twisty, and it was high uh, on the mountain down low. There was a wadi, and and you traveled it at your own risk. In fact, uh, historians tell us that the people who had been released from jail that that couldn't uh, couldn't find their way back into society, this is where they went to live. And they made their living by being robbers and thieves. It was so dangerous that some rabbis and some, some commentators say this path, a 17-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho, was rever- referred to as the valley of the shadow of death because you would go there at your own risk, potentially losing your own life. And so this man in this story found himself accosted by these robbers, left half dead, naked. Now in Jesus' day... You were identified. People knew where you were from and they knew about you in two ways. First of all, by how you dressed. And secondly, by your accent. So the things that identified this man for who he was were taken away from him. He was stripped naked. They couldn't tell who he was or where he was from by his clothing because it was gone. And I'm guessing if he was half dead, he wasn't able to speak with a clear accent. He was probably able to just mutter out words, right? So the things that identified him, the things that gave him value and worth were taken of him, robbed from him, stripped of him, and he's left half dead. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The other side, my friends, is a laugh line. It's a, it's a joke. It's sarcasm. Um, this road, uh, you can see here, uh, both the passes, uh, both pictures. Um, does it really look like there's another side? There's a high mountain cliff or there's a treacherous drop-off. There is no other side. And so Jesus says, uh, the priest and the Levite went by and they passed the other side and the people were like, that's a good one, Jesus. That, yeah. No, they didn't. If they wanted to get out of the way, they either had to climb the cliff or go down into the wadi at, 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 to risk their own life. But this road from Jericho to Jerusalem, the 17 miles, was, was frequently traveled by three groups of people. The temple is in Jerusalem. And the people who serve in the temple, many of them lived in Jericho. So the three groups of people that served in the temple were the priests, the Levites, and the ordinary everyday Jewish citizen. And they would travel from Jericho to Jerusalem on a two-week rotation. You serve in the temple two weeks, you're off for two weeks. You serve for two weeks, you're off for two weeks. And so they get done with their temple service, and it was very common on this road to see somebody beaten silly, and it's very common to see a priest or a Levite walking this path. And so the people in the store are like, oh, that's a good one. So Jesus kind of lessens the, lightens the moment with a sense of humor. And then I think the teacher of the law is like, okay, the priest passes him by. The the, the Levite passes him by. Who's my neighbor? You're going to say someone just like me, an ordinary Jewish citizen. Somebody just like me, that, that's who's next, right? So you're going to say, that's who my neighbor. Jesus, you're going you're gonna to cave. You're going you're gonna to affirm our belief that the people who we should really care about are those who look like us and dress like us and act like us and talk like us and worship like us. That's who it is, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus changes with a little laughter 
and goes a totally different direction and catches them off guard. Have you ever noticed how sometimes laughter does that? It breaks down the barrier. And so Jesus gives a laugh line and then he says, look, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And Jesus changes the story. Now I think that the priest and the Levite get a bum rap. If we look at the story like we've normally looked at the story, if we look at this as a story about roadside assistance and who helps and who doesn't, the priest and the Levite get a bad rap. The priest and the Levite are, are wrestling, they're struggling. In, in Leviticus chapter uh, 22, in Leviticus 22, you can go and read verses 3 and 4 sometime. In Leviticus 22, it says that if a, if a priest wants to serve in the temple, he has to remain ceremonially, ceremonially clean. And then it goes on to say, if he wants to eat the offering that's given, he has to be clean. You see, the offerings were brought by the people and they were offered on the altar and then the, the offering was divided up. Some of it went to the priest, some of it went to the poor. If the priest wanted to eat the offering, he had to be ceremonially clean. So the law demands that the priest stay ceremonially clean and touching somebody that's bleeding, touching somebody that's dead, makes him unclean. So here's this law, Leviticus 22. Leviticus 19, there's the law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the priest and the Levite have to decide, which do I do? How many of you have ever found yourself in business or in school or uh, someplace else? You, you've got this dilemma. In the 1970s, they called it situational ethics. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure what's right. Um, What's the best choice, this or that? And you've got people who come up and you're trying to get advice from them and they're like, uh, just do what the Bible says. And you're like, well, that doesn't help. And so the priest and the Levite find themselves in this situation. The Bible says to stay ceremonially clean. The Torah says to love my neighbor as myself. Which do I do? The rabbis have a phrase, heavier or lighter. Which is heavier or lighter? Which, which demand? It's not just black and white, but, but it's a difficult situation. And I, I should do what is heavier. I should, I should do that. And so they, get a, they take a bad rap. But at this point, this, this, this ordinary Jew is thinking, okay, now he's going to say, okay, we, he lets the priest off the hook, he lets the Levite off the hook. We know why they didn't help. Heavier or lighter, understand. So now it's going to be an ordinary person just like me. And Jesus says, no, it's a Samaritan. Look what he does. He goes even further. Jesus like piles on. A Samaritan came and helped, took pity on him. Verse 34. And he went to him and bandaged his wound, pouring on oil and wine. The two, two of the main tools, two of the main things that priests and Levites would use in the temple were oil and wine. So now not only does a Samaritan stop and help, the Samaritan is now into his hands are placed the instruments of the priest. And this teacher, who's an expert in the law, I think is starting to squirm. He's like, eh. I wish he would have stopped with the laugh line. He's given the Samaritan the, 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 the tools of the priest. No, the Samaritans, don't even think, the Samaritans don't even think they should worship in our temple. They worship on another hill. No, don't, don't give the Samaritan the, the tools of the priest. There was a saying in Jesus' day. It said this, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like he who eats the flesh of swine. We're not allowed by the law to eat the flesh of the swine. So it's equally as bad to eat the bread that Samaritans would offer. In Jesus' day, 
during some synagogue worship, people would pause to actually curse the Samaritans. In worship, they would curse the Samaritans. They would offer a daily petition to God that the Samaritans would not be able to inherit eternal life. The prayer was simply, God, let no Samaritan be in heaven. Another phrase was this, there are two nations my soul detests, the third is not a nation at all, the stupid people living at Shechem, where the Samaritans lived, where the Samaritans headquartered, the stupid people living at Shechem. And so this, this, this expert in the law is starting to get nervous. Jesus is now talking about someone he hates. There's no other word for it. He's talking about someone he hates. The, t- the teacher of the law had wanted to paint Jesus as a heretic. The teacher of the law uh, wanted to paint Jesus in a corner. And what Jesus was revealing was there was unimaginable venom between Jews and Samaritans. And now the Samaritan that this Jew hates is using the tools of the priest. The Samaritan takes a risk, verse 34. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He brought the man on his own donkey. Very simply, let me say that's a huge sign of respect. Brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Sarah Samaritan navigated the ways of potential debt to take care of this man. He, he put himself at, all, at risk. And then Jesus says, all right, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the, band, into the hands of the robbers? Tell me, which of these three? And the response of, this, uh, of the teacher of the law is fascinating. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't even let momentarily his lips form and those, those syllables and those, those vowels and consonants form on his lips. He can't even say Samaritan, not even momentarily. And somebody asks you, oh, how's so-and-so? And the best you can come up with is, oh, you mean my ex? Because their name can't even reside momentarily on your lips. The story is not, friends, first and foremost about roadside assistance. It is, I would argue with you, a story about Jesus saying, when asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus saying this, who do you hate the most? Whose name cannot even reside momentarily on your lips? It's a challenge to confront racism and bigotry. It's a challenge to come to grips and come to terms with those who have wronged you and double-crossed you and cheated you and divorced you and stabbed you in the back. Who is it, Jesus is saying, that you really hate? Oh, you frame it in the terms of a theological debate. You know all the right words to say. Love God, love your neighbor. You know the right words, but deep down, hidden underneath it all, who is it that you hate? It is not an abstract theological idea. Hatred is a lethal thing, and Jesus cuts to the core of it. And he says, you who are supposed to be living as priests, as experts in the law, I'm tired of your words. Fundamentally, who is it that you hate? Is there anybody's name that you have difficulty saying? Is there anybody's name and just the thought of them causes hatred to start to surface? Can we put ourselves in the story? Who are you in the story? The priest? The Levite? The Samaritan? 
the innkeeper? Who are you in the story? Hatred is venomous and it destroys. Proverbs chapter 10, I want you to see a couple of passages very quickly. Proverbs chapter 10 about hatred that's disguised. But when we see it, when we see these, these expressions of it, we need to call it what it is. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up dissension. Have you ever been part of a group where there was dissension? I want to be on this side and you're on that side and you don't think like me or act like me or see the situation the same thing, so it's, so it's your side against my side. Hatred stirs up dissension. And dissension happens, unfortunately, oftentimes in the American church. And when there's dissension and when it's about which side is right and which side is wrong and we get involved in that debate, it's not just dissension, it's really hatred. Verse 18, Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. This, te- this expert in the law hid his hatred with lying lips. How do, you, how do you inherit eternal life? You tell me, Jesus said. And he said, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Right, go and do it. His lips betrayed him. He knew what to say with his mouth, but deep down he could not even form the word, the name Samaritan. What's it say? It says, Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips is a fool. The start to being able to live as a priest is really doing business internally with those people who have wronged you and hurt you and abused you and mocked you and double-crossed you and betrayed you. That group of people that you just can't stand and not lying about it, saying, I am okay with it. Proverbs chapter 15. Flip over a couple of pages. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 17. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. A fattened calf was used to throw a party. It served about a hundred people and you only did it in Jesus' day when you wanted to throw a party. You didn't have the fattened calf just for yourself. And so it's easy to go about and go about everyday business and make everybody think everything's fine and that you have reason to celebrate. But in reality, there's hatred deep in your heart. And, and the Word says, the Scriptures say, better a little bit of vegetables with love than pretending on the outside everything's okay and there's hatred. The first step, my friends, is coming to the place where you can admit what's going on in your heart. Where you can be honest about what it is you think about that person and what you feel. And not stuffing it and admitting uh, or, or, or refusing to admit it. it, it, it getting to the, to, to the starting point where I can be free to say, uh, to name the things that get at me. Where, where I don't have to feel like I say, no, I didn't say that when I hit my thumb with the hammer. <laughs> yeah, I said it. I'm not proud of it. I said it. But we have to admit it. No, no, that person, I cannot even stand to think about them. Admitting it is the first step. God, this is what is inside of me. It's fascinating to me that Jesus tells this expert in the law, verse 37, go and do likewise. I think Jesus is saying you have to, you have to acknowledge his humanity. Yeah, you, you understand why the priest passed by and you understand why the Levite passed by, but you're not sure about the Samaritan. You need to acknowledge his humanity. You thought the only ones were that were in were the ones that are just like you. Well, I want to tell you the Samaritans can get in too. You have to acknowledge their humanity. Maybe in, in not acknowledging his humanity, this expert in the law had lost a little bit of his own humanity. 
This expert in the law is in trouble. There's something, there's something happening to his soul. I don't know about you, but I don't want people to identify me and, and, and classify me by my sins and mistakes. I want them to look past that. But how often do we, do we have a double standard? You look past my mistakes, but I'm going to hold yours against you. And Jesus says you have to acknowledge their humanity in order for you to come to grips with your own. So I ask you to put yourself in the story. Who are you? The, the Pharisee, the Levite, the Samaritan, the innkeeper? But there's, there's one more. And I think Jesus was really challenging this expert in the law to put himself in the story. And I think Jesus wanted the expert in the law to see himself as the one who was on the road, stripped and half dead. Those things that he held on to that made him identify himself, how he dressed and how people acknowledged him as an expert in the law, the, the accent and the questions that he could ask, those were taken away from him here in this moment. And I think Jesus wants each and every one of us to realize that we too can be the person left naked and half dead. And the question becomes, are you willing to let the Samaritan be your neighbor? Are you really uh, willing to let them come in and meet your need? My friend, can you recognize the hated as your neighbor? If not, your hate will consume you. Can you recognize the Samaritan, that person who, who, whose name you can't even form on your lips? Can you recognize them as your neighbor? If not, you might be left for dead on the road. How would you answer the question? Uh, fill in the blank. If, if the... If the first part of the sentence is just a blank and it says, blank is my neighbor, who, whose name do you need to put in that blank? Whose name? There, there are some uh, pink, while you were out, uh, pieces of paper in every pew. If not, there are, there are cards there in front of you. And I would challenge you, if there's somebody like that in your life that you'd write their name on the paper, the first step is beginning it, is admitting it. Saying, God, I don't want to carry this around anymore. I want to be free. I don't want to be left stripped and half dead. Maybe, my friend, there's no name. But if you'd be honest, it's a group of people. Maybe it's time, as a follower of Jesus, you come to grips and admit the fact that deep down inside, where nobody looks, where nobody knows, there's bigotry and racism that resides in your heart. And it's hatred. That if one of them tried to come to your rescue, you'd rather not be rescued than have one of them touch you. That if one of them was alongside the road, you'd find a way to climb up the hill or go down to the path so you didn't have to touch them. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a group. Maybe it's someone who's wronged you or betrayed you or stabbed you in the back. I don't know, how would you fill in the blank? I'd, I'd ask you to write the name down. You don't have to let anybody else see it. I'd ask you to write the name down. And here's what I'm asking you to do. As, as that ink penetrates that paper, would you ask the Spirit to penetrate your heart and your hatred? Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? God, we've been wronged. We've been abandoned. We've been betrayed. We know who we want to be in and who we want to be out. We know if we're comfortable with people just like us and uncomfortable with people who aren't like us. God, this day we want to, rest, we want to identify ourselves as the half-dead man. 
who was rescued by one of them. God, would you rescue us from our hate, from our rage, from our anger? May we come to see every person that we ever look at as created in your image, your child, worth Jesus dying. God, if we've, if we've stopped seeing people and their humanity, would you help us to recapture that so maybe we can recapture our own? God, no longer let lying lips hide our hatred. God, we don't want to miss out on the rescuing. Would you use those that we hate to show us how much you love? Would you use those that we hate to show us how Jesus has liberated us and set us free and offers us new life? God, this morning as we put pen to paper, we assume that you are present, that you are the God who offers healing and liberating freedom. Oh God, we want to be free. We do not want to be experts in the law who come to the point where we, where we think your commands are burdensome or there's no value in serving. Oh God, we want to serve the way you've called us to serve. And we love you. We love you. We love you. In the privacy of these moments, God, deal with our hatred. Free us from it. Help us. Help us to know that you have rescued us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen. If you're able to identify yourself and say today, you put yourself in the story, yeah, I'm... I'm I'm the one who's stripped and half dead. You find yourself on that road today. Can I simply ask you, are you willing to let that person that you don't want to step in and bring healing and minister Christ and his love to you today? If not, what's really going on? God offers you his peace and his hope and his rescuing. And sometimes he uses people that we would rather we would wish he would rather not. So, so wherever you find yourself in the story, I hope you'll let, let God come and rescue you through the human touch of someone else. I hope that you'll let God use you uh, to offer that human touch uh, to somebody else this week. Now, it may seem kind of odd and strange and uncomfortable that we went from talking about uh, uh, hatred to a very lighthearted video. Well, here's what we want you to understand. The, the Hebrew root words uh, for forgiveness and dance are the same. And so my brothers and sisters, it's my prayer for you that as you deal with your own Jerusalem to Jericho road, those issues of hatred and hurt, it's my prayer that you'll find God's forgiveness and that you'll be much freer and lighter to dance and to forgive and to function the way God wants you to function and in doing so you'll change the world. Leave here in the peace and the light love of Jesus Christ. Peace be with you.